Welcome to episode 97 of Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. Today I'm going to talk more about drying vertically and why that could be an advantage. I've got a question about bicycle parts made out of wood. And most importantly, I want to start a new feature on the show this week, something I've wanted to do since the inception of the show, and that's feature a specific species on the show. I had thought originally about making entire episodes dedicated to a species, and what held me back from that was, how, you know, would I have enough to say about some of the more obscure species? And it occurs to me, working into a segment, and if the species is magnificent enough, it can turn into its own episode. So yeah, we're going to start the feature of the month and this feature of the month, feature of the episode. And uh, today I'm going to be talking about Oregon Myrtle. But first, let's do a little bit of news, some feedback, things like that. Uh, you guys always take the time to, to write in and answer any questions I throw out to the audience. Um, first and foremost, Stephen had written in and uh, he was actually one of a few people that corrected me here that uh, Hughes's Hercules, his uh, spruce goose, was actually not made out of spruce. It was actually made mostly out of birch plywood and specifically a process called Duramold that at the time, uh, I can't remember the company that was actually had patented it, but Hughes Aircraft bought the rights to that Duramold process and uh, made most of the panels out of birch plywood for the spruce goose. So there we go. Um, I've had quite a few interesting uh, emails on the aviation episode, and I may be having another episode on wood in the aviation industry, like all the way up until today, because certainly seem to be a lot of people who are interested in that. I got this great email from Jay, and I'm going to, basically it was, it was an image uh, and I'm going to put that into the show notes for anyone to read the whole thing. But in short, it's a story of uh, an arborist who had been told by the city to remove his pepper tree. Uh, I don't know if it was infringing on the sidewalk, on power lines or something, but the city mandated that he remove the tree. In fact, they came out and removed the tree for him and then sent him the bill for removing the tree. And this guy was upset because they really like this tree and it's like you can't believe you stuck me with the bill so he went and being an arborist had his resources had his leads he went and planted several giant sequoia seeds at the mayor's house on the mayor's property and this letter that he writes is to the mayor some three to four years later when he tells them that i have planted giant sequoias in your yard. And if you look out, you'll see those, those saplings out there. Well, here's what's going to happen over the next couple of years. And he explains the fast growing weight of the giant sequoia and basically says that you can go ahead and remove them, but it's going to cost you about $17 a pop. So Merry Christmas. <laughs> it just makes me laugh because it's like tree sabotage. You know, we have industrial sabotage. This is tree sabotage. And this is the kind of sabotage I can get behind where we just start, you know, this guerrilla warfare of planting trees in people's yards. <laughs> I think that's fantastic. So there we go, folks. We're going to fur uh, further the, uh, the um, lumber industry by just guerrilla tree planting all over the place. <laughs> Thank you, Jay, for sending that in. That was pretty awesome. So let's talk about some industry news. Uh, had uh, an article sent to me a couple times from a couple people about um, one of the researchers at Texas A&M who has pretty definitively defined and identified 
the chemicals that makes Stradivarius violins so great. And we've talked about this in the past um, a long time ago, one of really early episodes about the types of woods and that there was thought about the finish could possibly be doing this. Well, this uh, Texas A&M researcher who's basically been researching, you know, tone woods his entire career, 40 plus years, and through mass spectroscopy, I got to get that word right for a future story, uh, he basically positively identified that these were preservatives used to fight bugs. It was basically borax and a few other things because there were bug outbreaks at the time where they were getting their tone woods. So Stradivarius, as well as a few of his contemporaries, had their own little cocktails for fighting the bugs, just like a lot of woodworkers mix up their own boiled linseed oil and mixture type finishes. These violin makers had the same thing. And apparently, that borax compound that Stradivarius used just to fight bugs is what gives his soundboards that Stradivarian quality. So I will post a link to this article. It's very interesting and it gets pretty technical as well. And I find it fascinating that this type of thing, this type of chemical treatment can do this. And we're seeing this today with tone woods and soundboards specifically of thermally modified and chemically treated soundboards in order to create very specific sounds. So yeah, Stradivarius was well ahead of his time. And then Bobby sent me this story about uh, uh, Department of Fish and Wildlife has a mass spectrometer that they have basically put on wheels, put it into a trailer, and they've started to definitively be able to identify uh, the origin of wood. So one of the biggest issues with regulation of, of you know, uh, logging and specifically preventing illegal logging is determining the source you know, unless you can prove that the wood came from an area that is illegal or not from the concession that the paperwork says or prove anything that, that can allow you to prosecute, you can't actually catch people in the act, which, you know, then can't lead to further investigations, which can lead to shutdowns and things like that. So it really has to start. You can seize the wood, but if you can't prove that it was illegal, nothing happens. So this is an opportunity um, to be able to definitively prove where this is coming from. And they basically have samples of wood from all these different areas. And of course they run that through the mass spectrometer. And then if they run the seized wood through the spectrometer and they get a match, well, then we know that it's from this particular grid square on this particular map segment within this particular province or concession in Brazil. And that's a no-no and it automatically becomes illegal. Now there's a lot of other stuff that needs to happen in here, but at least now you have that you know, that red herring, maybe not a red herring, not mix that metaphor there. You have that evidence that can allow you to achieve any warrants, allow you to continue to pursue an investigation to eventually shut down an illegal operation. So yeah, uh, the little spectrometer scooter coming to a port near you from Fish and Wildlife. So let's move to the featured species. Um, as I said, I'm going to talk about Oregon myrtle. And the only reason that I picked this to start with is because I just finished a table where the top is made out of Oregon myrtle. That's, um, let's see, Umbellularia californica. Um, as the name denotes, it grows in the Pacific Northwest, mostly in Oregon. Go figure. That's why it's called the Oregon myrtle. Um, it's kind of, let's just start with the basics. It's kind of a light brown in color. Nice uniform grain, very, very um, 
well, it's diffuse pore, so very close grain, uh, not a whole lot going on in the grain. Very, very creamy sapwood with like a yellowish overtones in the sapwood. Uh, in California, it's sometimes known as the bay laurel. It's also known as the pepperwood, which actually that story about the guy planting sequoias, that's probably what he's referring to as his pepper tree. He could possibly be referring to an actual pepper tree, but the uh, myrtle is often known as the pepperwood as well. Um, the, uh, uh, the range, as I said, is, is mostly Pacific Northwest, coastal regions primarily, Southwest Oregon, and then in Central California, where, as I said, it's known as the California Bay Laurel. It is um, about 1,200 Janka hardness, so similar to something like red oak, but again, it's a diffuse porous wood and very close grain. Um, and in my experience, just now uh, building a table out of it, it worked incredibly well with hand tools. It was very smooth. The density wasn't super high, but it was very uniform. There wasn't a lot of early and late growth variations. So I found that it planed just like butter. It was really, really nice. And I actually had a very, very curly piece of, of Oregon Myrtle, and I had a, a sapwood to heartwood transition in there. So I should have had quite a bit of variation in density. Curl is essentially just ingrain poking up through the surface and it planed beautifully. I didn't have to do any special things with my smoothing plane. I should choose my regular old, you know, standard pitch smoothing plane with a sharp blade and a tight mouth, and it did the job beautifully. For something with 1,200, almost 1,300 Janka hardness and, um, and, and a lot of curl, it should have been a lot harder than it was to, to plane. So really interesting wood, quite happy with it. I'm, I'd like to get my hands on some more just kind of plain grain stuff. Um, to to see, I imagine that would work even better. But again, looking at things like shearing strength, um, the other technical details on this, it, it very much jives with my specific experience um, working with this wood. It is widely, I mean, obviously narrow distribution being coastal, uh, coastal Oregon and California, but it is also widely found in that area. And it's been planted all over the country. Um, I actually bought this uh, years ago from Cook Woods up in Klamath, Oregon. So that was a, a locally sourced wood for them. But you're going to be able to find this myrtle all over the place. Um, the interesting thing, very much like the um, many of the, the cypresses, uh, the Douglas firs, it's, it's kind of an imposter. Um, it doesn't actually belong to the genus of its name. Myrtle uh, is in the laurel genus. Um, and uh, sorry, this particular myrtle that we're talking about, the Oregon myrtle, is in the laurel genus, not the myrtus genus. Um, that's mostly shrubs. It's mostly things that woodworkers would never come into contact with because it just doesn't make, you know, big trunks, doesn't make big woody bits to turn into boards. This particular myrtle, uh, why it was ended up being named a myrtle, one may never know. Um, this type of thing happens all the time, but it's also why the California bay laurel is what it's also known as, or sometimes a slight variant on it, because the bay laurel is in the laurel family, as is the Oregon myrtle. Very common to find this stuff. Like I said, Douglas fir, cypress, uh, western red cedar. <laughs> it's not actually a cedar. Um, 
so yeah, I just, I really had a wonderful, pleasant experience with this. I did a little bit of digging, looking around at a couple of online suppliers, looked at a couple of local sawmills, certainly local sawmills in the, in the Pacific Northwest. I found Oregon Myrtle in a lot of their stocks, but I've also found it in some sawmills in the Midwest. I found it in a sawmill up in Pennsylvania, just looking through their stock. So it's obviously widely available through this urban logging movement because people are planting it um, as, you know, uh, uh, yard trees and things. So there is just a brief look at a species that maybe you never heard of before. Maybe you never thought of it from a wood woodworking perspective, but I can tell you from firsthand experience, really, really lovely wood. Um, great color palette. It's got that creamy color that could fill in as a white wood like maple, but that kind of lightish brown heartwood. Really, it's not quite white oak, um, but it's also not butternut. It's a little bit lighter than that. And really just, I think it finds it when, when you use it, it will definitely be different than anything else you've used from a color palette perspective, even though it is just brown and cream, it's going to look different enough that it should catch some eyes. So there we go. There's my featured species of the episode. Go get yourself some Oregon Myrtle and let me know what you think of it if you do. So let's move on to emails here. Um, William had a question about bike parts, making a fender specifically. He said, I'd like to make some fenders or mud guards for you in the UK for a bike, a human powered one, not a motorcycle. I've seen most bike fenders are metal or plastic. Although there are some DIY projects online, I'd figure to make a form for the two curvatures and then laminate veneers into the fender. I don't know if there are any considerations they need to be aware of, such as glue or the finish afterwards. And as far as the finish, I've used some red gum for other add-ons to the bike, and it would be nice to use a consistent species. So um, uh, he goes on to say that he was a little confused looking up red gum. He went to the wood database, like I suggest, and didn't really find anything he was looking for. Uh, he said when he bought it, it was identified as being 100 years old, but this was at the start of his woodworking hobby, so he didn't pick up too many boards or didn't really ask a whole lot of questions. So I followed up via email, had him send me some pictures. I suspect he's talking about sweet gum. Upon sending me pictures, I absolutely confirmed that it is sweet gum. Sweet gum certainly can be colloquially known as red gum, um, but red gum is its own species. That's an Australian species that is... Uh, so definitely not like sweet gum. Like most Australian species, it's uh, very hard, very interlocked, very difficult to work. Sweet gum, on the other hand, um, even though you know, maybe I'll do a featured species on this at some time, it's a very different experience. It's the hardness of around cherry or walnut. Uh, sometimes it can actually can be substituted for cherry because it does have some of that reddish color, which is where that colloquial name red gum comes from. But sweet gum ultimately, um, the name comes to the, the, how the tree smells, um, especially uh, the fruit of the tree. I've got a beautiful one just down the street from me. In fact, I actually just posted this in my Instagram filter the other day. Instagram filter? Instagram feed the other day. There's a, just a glorious, glorious sweet gum um, down the street from me that I walk under as I walk the dog every day. Anyway, none of that has anything. It's an unintentional featured species there. We'll talk about sweet gum later. Um, so doing this, we're talking about bent lamination and certainly I, I strive to not make this a woodworking show and do the techniques on things like wood talk, but you can't get around that sometimes. Ultimately, we're talking about bent lamination. So the species itself shouldn't really make a difference. I mean, I've done bent laminations in Ipe and Ipe is stupid hard, you know, ridiculously hard and interlocked. This, the answer, the secret is always to just to make thinner 
uh, laminates. So, and of course, the, the more radical the curve, the tighter that curve, the thinner those laminations need to be. So for something like a fender, that curve is not very tight. So you could probably very easily do this with eighth inch thick uh, uh, laminates, um, thicknesses for the laminations, eight inch, eighth inch, eighth of an inch thick, maybe even thicker than that, three sixteenths possibly. Um, just depends upon that that radius. If you're talking about a 700C wheel, that's not a very tight radius. So you could get away with quite a lot. The issue is the thicker you make those laminates, the more spring back you're liable to have out of the form. Now he's talking about making both a positive and a negative form and sandwiching in between. Um, bent lamination can really be done with a bunch of different glues. If you're doing this for fenders for a bike, you want a, a waterproof glue. Um, you could use something like Type Bond 3 for that. But honestly, I just feel like it's better to stack the cards in your favor with a bent lamination, um, not only from just a holding power, from a weather resistance, but from an open time using something like an epoxy. Any kind of resorcional epoxy, um, you could use a polyurethane, but still go with epoxy, go with a long open time, like two part mixed epoxy. Um, that you might even use for like uh, a veneering and a veneer press or something like that. Ultra Cat I like because it's water-based. Unibond has several different products that you can use that you mix together. And with that, um, you shouldn't have any issues because the glue is going to hold really well. You want to keep that in the form a really, really long time and make sure that to try to avoid that spring back. So not only has the glue cured, but things have kind of come into moisture equilibrium as well. In fact, you could take it out of the form, but then like put a, like a rope around it to kind of maintain, um, maintain that curvature and you would avoid a lot of that spring back. But since we're talking bent lamination, the species itself really doesn't make a difference. Um, well, I shouldn't say that. Um, the technique will be the same, but the harder the species, the more resistant it is to bending, the thinner you want those laminations. And of course, the harder, more resistant to bending and the tighter the curve, the even thinner you want those laminations. It does become a failure point where you really can't make the laminations much thinner. Maybe you don't even have the capacity to make lamination thinner than a 16th of an inch. You know, trying to go thinner than that could cause, you know, could be difficult to actually machine. So, but honestly, for the radius we're talking about, and since we are talking about sweet gum, and since it is a, you know, a relatively innocuous wood as far as hardness goes, you won't have much of an issue. Using an epoxy like that is essentially going to impregnate the wood and really make that whole lamination weather resistant. Sweet gum itself is not a, a, an exterior wood, but with all that epoxy in there, it's not going to really matter. So I say, go for it, you know, embrace the sweet gum, other parts on your bike and make your fender out of the sweet gum um, that you have. And please, when you do this, send me a picture. I got to see that. All right. My last question is from Andrew. He says, uh, recent listener, but periodic watcher of your Renaissance woodworker videos. <laughs> Didn't realize you were the same person until I started listening. Hey, there you go. I'm the same person. Yeah, I do. I do a lot of stuff, a couple podcasts and some video things and a school and do marketing and all that fun stuff for lumber companies. Anyway, um, Andrew says, down to brass tacks, I was told that drying a live oak vertically helps reduce its apparently notorious warping problems while, while drying. Is there any standing to this? I, I listened through your episodes talking about urban lumber and drying, but this is the first I've heard of drying it vertically. I have a large slab 
that is uh, about 12, uh, 14 quarter thick by 24 by 60 inches long of California coastal live oak. Uh, I wonder. Quercus virginiana, I think. Isn't that uh, live oak? But is California live oak different? Please hold one second. Um, live oak is definitely, yeah, Quercus uh, virginiana. But what about California live oak? Is that a different species? This is really no bearing on anything here. It's just me being a nerd and wanting to know. Um, I'm not seeing anything in particular. I don't know if there's a specific cultivar for California live oak. Um, but so I'll just go off a of live oak. Not that it really makes that much of a difference to this particular conversation, as you will quickly discover here. Um, his neighbor had a tree come down. He was trying to save the wood from the chipper. So he called about a dozen sawyers. Several of them weren't interested because they said live oak warps horribly. One sawyer said he was interested in taking the wood for free and gifting me a slab as a thank you. Said his other Sawyer buddy got around, um, got around this warping by slabbing, stickering, and ratcheting the wood, then standing the reassembled log vertical to dry for six months. Supposedly very minimal warpage. This is an old wives' tale, or do you think there's some validity? So, um, and he wants to make a bench top out of this, so he's hoping to minimize warping. Uh, well, first of all, there's a couple things. Um, the thickness of this board is such that it's going to resist a lot of the movement. It's just got more beam strength to it. But anybody who doesn't know a live oak, well, I also posted this on my um, Instagram feed as well. There were several beautiful live oaks around Kill Devil Hills um, where the Wright Brothers Memorial is. And I took a couple pictures of those when I was down there. But this is a gnarly tree. Spready, spready, spready. Like there's no central trunk. It like spreads three inches like forks three inches off the ground and just goes all over the place they're absolutely beautiful things so the tree itself grows any way but up <laughs> it's sideways diagonally all over the place so you can imagine there's a lot of tension wood if you will like a lot of people talk about how you don't use the branches for for boards because of that tension wood and the pith is off center and there's all kinds of reaction going on there that can cause that board to warp dramatically as tension is released as that board dries. And this is really what we're talking about with live oak. So um, absolutely they're right that live oak will warp a lot and it can be difficult to dry because of that. Um, stacking stickering is par for the course for drying because you need the airflow through. Ratcheting um, is also pretty standard. We do this with most species. We ratchet it down to kind of hold things in place and try to restrain the wood from warping um, while not restricting it from moving. That's a very standard practice. So you could do this for live oak, but there's still every chance that you're going to see a lot of movement there. So what about the standing it vertically? Well, yes, I actually think this would work. But here's the thing. I don't think it matters if it's live oak or not. I think this could be an effective method for drying any wood, but if you have a particularly problem-prone wood like live oak, I think this would work. So A, keep it as thick as you possibly can. That's going to help resist a lot of the warping and twisting, but be very aware once you actually start planing and removing new wood, you could have some issues. So you wanna to try to remove wood as evenly from both sides as possible. But here's what I'm thinking. The strongest direction of, of, of 
strength <laughs> in, in a tree, it's called crushing strength. That is along the fibers, like onto the ingrain. Stand a board up vertically and press straight down on the ingrain into the floor. That is the strongest direction, the long axis of, of that tree. So when you take your boards and you've, you've sawn them into boards and you're able to sticker them and get them ratcheted and squeezed together flat, um, whether it stays, like I don't think you necessarily have to reassemble the tree like into, into a bool here, but by stacking them together, putting them on stickers, you're supporting every inch of that board across its width. Ratcheting them together puts it under compression and then standing it up straight pulls puts gravity right on that long axis now we've talked about gravity drying here before where standing a board up just allows the free water to drain out the bottom so you stand it up vertically let that free water drain make sure you're mopping up that puddle so that it doesn't reabsorb via capillary action back into the wood you want that water to be gone so it continues to shed more water but if that pack standing vertically like that is leaning a millimeter one way or another you're gonna probably end up seeing some warping. But if you can ratchet this and keep it perfectly supported, which is probably why reassembling it like in a bool, because then you've got like a wider, as the tree tapers outward in the circle, you've got you know the widest boards right in the center of the tree and then they get narrower and narrower and narrower out to the very edge. So by assembling it, reassembling it that way, you could essentially band strap all the way around it, squeeze it all the way together and you're gonna have that tapered board from thinner to wider at the pith to give full support on like the full width of each one of these boards in that bool. So yeah, I do think that that I'm contradicting myself to realize that I think that would make things easier. If you don't have the bool, as long as you are stacking as close to similar widths together and making sure that you don't have a wider board on top or towards the outside of the vertical stack from a narrower board, because when you ratchet strap, that board is going to kind of curl under. So you wanna make sure that you've got stickers in the right places so that every aspect of that board is going to be supported properly while still allowing air to flow through. Ratchet strap, band clamp that sucker down, stand it up vertically and probably build some sort of support, you know, out of two by fours or whatever to keep it held nice and vertically while it stands there. Let the, the free water come out. But now as it's drying, the weight, all the force is in that strongest dimension, the dimension that's most capable of resisting any movement. And the rest of it is kind of secured via those straps. You might actually do pretty well. If you were to let that air dry for a little bit in that same condition and then take it to the kiln, you would be even better. Now, you're not gonna have enough room in a kiln to stand up a long board vertically, but he's talking about a 60 inch long board, you know, five feet. You could actually stand that vertically in a kiln, but I would still recommend doing a long air dry on this, especially because you're talking about, you know, what do you say, three, three and a half inches thick here. That's gonna, you need to air dry that for a long time anyway, you know, a couple of months before you would put that in a kiln. But you could also stand that vertically and like run a fan through it sideways. So it's blowing through those, the space with the stickers. And I think you'd be surprised how much moisture you could pull out of that. Now, the stabilization that's going to prevent that from warping will be when you start to get that moisture content down below 6% and you start to get the hardening of the cell walls. But just like the previous question about bent lamination, you want to hold it in the form until the glue cures or with steam bending, you want to hold it in the form until the moisture returns back to ambient. 
And when it does, then those fibers kind of set back in place. So with this standing vertically and all that force down on that strongest dimension, kind of holding it stock still, I think you actually stand a good chance. Personally, I'd never heard this before because it's a very extreme measure. Um, most woods, I don't think you really have to worry about this, but I can tell you the more I think about it, the more I think that it would work. So no, I don't actually think it's a wives tale, but I throw it out to you. There's a lot of uh, professionals, kiln operators that listen to this show. Let me know what you think. Am I wrong in my math here? But I do feel like that there's some similarity to this. And interestingly enough, it's why I grouped this question with the bending question, even though it wasn't a steam bending question, there is some similarities there. You're essentially locking it into a form. Now that form is vertical. That form is perfectly flat. Those boards stacked perfectly flat and held vertical, but by holding it vertical, you don't have gravity trying to tug that wood into a cup or tug it into a bow. It's going straight down and they stay hopefully pencil straight. We shall see. Andrew, Give it a shot. Let it air dry for, I'd say, at least three months with that thickness, if not longer than that. You're in California, so it's relatively dry out there. Give it a shot and let me know how it goes. Please write back in and let me know. And that brings me to the end of the show this week. Folks, thanks for the questions. Please keep the questions coming. You can send them via email to lumberupdate at gmail.com. You can go to lumberupdate.com and fill out the contact form there. You can reach me at uh, lumberupdateshow.com on Instagram. Um, you can become a Patreon, a Patreon. You can become a patron and support the show and ask questions via patron. So, uh, patreon.com slash lumber update. And, uh, hope you enjoy the show and I hope you are excited as I am about featured species every episode. Go buy some lumber, but this week go buy some Oregon myrtle. <laughs>